This morning, we're going to be continuing on uh, in our series entitled, uh, What's the Difference? Uh, and in that, we're kind of looking at the difference between a uh, worldly mindset, uh, a world-focused, earthly-focused, temporary uh, point of view uh, versus the eternal. And, and as we begin, uh, I thought I would uh, start off with reading a story uh, to you from one of my favorite types of books when I was a kid. Uh, and it's the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Was anybody else a big fan of those? I heard Matt with a little whoop over there. I love these books. I mean, there, there's danger, there's excitement, there's, there's winning uh, or, or losing. Uh, and so with that, this one's entitled Journey Under the Sea. Uh, and so you, you're kind of the premise of this is you're part of like an underwater exploratory team trying to find the lost city of Atlantis. Uh, and in that, there's all these different things that happen. And so I'm going to start on page 12 here. Uh, and in page 12, what's kind of happened is your, your submarine has been attacked by a, a giant squid. Uh, kind of like, you know, 30,000 leagues under the sea type thing, right? Uh, and so you uh, have decided to like, okay, I'm going to leave that alone. I don't want to mess with the squid. And so you're kind of swimming underwater, uh, and what happens is uh, you're swimming cautiously, you see uh, the small submarine in the grips of giant squid, uh, and you have a choice. Uh, you're at the ledge kind of above a canyon that's underwater, and you see a great white shark coming close to you to check you out. And so now you have a choice. Uh, you can either sit there and then fire some emergency boosters, which will shoot you straight up to the surface of the ocean, uh, in which case uh, your decompression, you don't have the right amount of time, and you know that you're going to be going through some painful uh, bends, they're called, as your body doesn't uh, adjust to that. Or uh, you can sit there and quietly wait, hoping that the shark doesn't notice you. And so we're going to take a vote here. Who decides to fire the emergency boosters and head to the surface of the water? Anybody, raise your hands. Okay, we got a three, four, five. Okay. So who wants to sit there and hope that the shark doesn't see you? All right. We got more hands that are saying, let's not go through the bends. Let's kind of hope the shark doesn't see. All right. Page 22. This is the... F All right. You wait for the shark to go away. No luck. Other sharks are coming in to join the hunt. They circle you, coming closer and faster each time. It's too late. There's no escape. And the largest shark, jaws gaping, strikes. Okay, we don't go with the majority next time. But, but I, love, I love these books as a kid because I, it felt like you were in the story. You're the hero. You're the main character. The choices that you make form how the story goes uh, and what the end will be. And I love these compared to like reading a normal story where there's a different hero and the ending is going to be the same no matter how many times you read it. Uh, and it's already been dictated and you're just kind of going along for the ride. The thing is, is when it comes to the reality uh, of our life, uh, much of our lives we'd rather be like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Like, we want to be in control. We want to be able to, to make our choices, to, to attempt to be the hero, uh, the winner, to achieve our goals. Uh, and it's not always in the sense uh, of fame or recognition, but, but even just to be a hero in what's important to us. Uh, it could be our family and being the best husband or wife or mother or father that we can be. 
It could be our career and reaching those goals or job security. It could be with our friends and, and just wanting to be appreciated uh, by others and making choices in order to do that. It could be society. It could be sports. It could be any number of things. And when you really sit and think about it, it's reflected in the language of our society. Follow your heart. Choose your own path. Choose your own adventure. And we get to participate in a national adventure in a couple of weeks here with an election. Which way is going to go? What's the result going to be? But we like to have these types of choices in our life. But there's a difference between that view and that of a biblical Christian view where Jesus is the main character and, and we're just supporting roles. We're not the main character in the universe. We're not the main character even within our own lives if we follow Jesus Christ as Lord. And so we need to see where we fit in the part of that greater, true, eternal story. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, last week when Jesse was here in the series, he started off uh, in chapter 2, kind of at the beginning of that, and taking a look uh, at false prophecies and then false teachers uh, and the need to be anchored within Scripture. Uh, today, we're actually going to go back a little bit to the end of chapter 1, uh, where I think it really reinforces uh, the teaching that he had last week. And so if you have your Bibles, we'll go to Second Peter chapter 1, begin verse 16. And before we read this, let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, we again thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a body, as your church, to worship and to look at the Word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would make it alive and active to us, uh, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we'd be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, that you would guide us and help us to be anchored in your Word. Uh, and not our perception, our desires, our goals, or trying to choose our own adventure in our lives. Father, we thank you for this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Peter here in chapter 1, verse 16 is read, uh, writing, uh, and he says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from the God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, so here, Peter uh, is showing that they didn't create their own path. They didn't create their own faith in any sense or, or follow any cleverly devised myths or beliefs about the Messiah. They're saying here on this mountain where the transfiguration happened, we, we had an experience with this that confirmed things. And that's what we're basing our faith on instead of any myths or beliefs that were made up or, or developed with these many prophecies, one of them being uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We read this uh, a lot of times uh, around the season of Christmas. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. 
He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And so here we have this prophecy, and, and through this prophecy, there actually become many different Jewish expectations of what the Messiah would be like when he came. And, and so they're sitting, and they're waiting, and waiting, and, and looking at these prophecies, and, and imagining what is it going to be like when he comes. And one of the more popular ideas at that time, because they were under Roman rule, is that the Messiah would come in order to lead the nation of Israel into an uprising and revolt to cast off their Roman overlords uh, in order to reestablish Israel as a powerhouse country in order to have its government last forever and its prosperity never end. Because of this, we see the different revolts that were even happening. Attempts to try and overthrow Rome in this, in order to conquer with this. And even the apostles themselves struggled with this idea of what they thought the Messiah would be like. They understood Jesus was the Messiah, but even in that, when Jesus was saying, yeah, I'm, I'm heading to the cross and, and I'm going to die, Peter says, let that, no, that will never be. And Jesus' response to him is, get behind me, Satan. And so even themselves were, were struggling with this idea of what these prophecies meant, what their expectations of what the Messiah would be. And so here now, Peter, writing this letter on the backside of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, uh, is now uh, responding to what they saw and experienced with Jesus. To see the transfiguration on the mountain where he's standing there and there was an appearance of someone like Moses uh, and Elijah and this voice from heaven saying, this is my son and I approve him. What does then Peter and John and James do with that? It's a recognition of, of Jesus not just being another human, but rather the son of God. Walking on earth, breathing, eating with them, traveling, causing miracles to happen, loaves and fishes, and Peter walking on water and then getting scared and sinking and Jesus bringing him back up. Like all of these pointing to the supernatural existence of Jesus Christ. And, and then even within this uh, possible temptation for Peter, James, and John to be coming there and they're at the transfiguration, and, and to be able to embellish their own stories a little bit. Say, oh yeah, like we got to have lunch with Jesus and Moses and Elijah and, and we were the chosen three and so now you have to listen to all that we say. I could have made up different stories with that, but the texts actually say uh, that they were terrified and were like falling down on their face because they didn't know how to respond in that moment. And Jesus then tells them uh, not to be afraid. But what Peter is doing here is saying, I was an eyewitness, and here is my testimony to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Christ. And even though the Israelites had misunderstood some prophecy, they came true in Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is pointing to when he says here in uh, verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven and while we were with him on the holy mountain, 
we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you do well to pay attention to it. And so what he's saying is even though it's kind of not fully understood until Jesus walked the earth and, and then fulfilled it, and then we were able to, to understand the prophecy more clearly. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 9 now, it says a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. We now understand uh, this was Jesus coming being born of a virgin, uh, being fully God and fully man, uh, as a child living a life without sin, uh, that the government will be on his shoulders, that, that he is king, not just king of some piece of land in the Middle East, not just king uh, of a continent, not just king of this earth, but the king of all. The one that spoke all things into existence. And, and that his rule is maintained and held by him. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. The reason it never ends is not because this prosperity, it's not based on earth. It's not based on the health of a population. It's not based on how much oil is in the ground or what natural resources are found or, or how much taxes or how little taxes or whether or not there's free health care or not. It doesn't matter. It's not based on anything of this earth, but rather its prosperity will never end because it is based on the word of the one who spoke all things into existence and all things are held together by his word. That prosperity can never be shaken because it is above and over all things. He'll reign on the throne uh, of David and over his kingdom. And in this, we understand that Jesus came from the lineage uh, of David to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. This is perfect justice. This is justice uh, from the one who is above and outside of all things. It's not justice in the sense of like, who can, we uh, so, um, who can we send to the Supreme Court? Who can be confirmed in this? What's their bias? You know, did a Republican appoint them or did a Democrat appoint them? How are they going to vote on this? How, what it's saying is his justice will be from the viewpoint of God himself and be perfect and that his righteousness is now on forever. God himself came to earth in the form of a man in order to establish his eternal kingdom. There's no election here for this. There, there's no opportunity for mankind in all of existence uh, to walk in, to send in ballots, to, to push a button, uh, and to be able to say, yeah, um, this Jesus guy, he doesn't quite represent my values. Like, like I'm kind of a one person or one topic kind of voter and I like my freedom um, and I want to do whatever I want to do. And so I'm just not going to vote for him. And hopefully we can get enough people together so that this whole thing doesn't happen. It's impossible. There is, there is no election. He has been king, is king, and will always be king. He established it by speaking all things into existence, and he's offered the opportunity for us to participate with him. 
Not by just sending some invitation on a card that says, hey, would you like to join me? But by coming to earth to be beaten, to be spit on, to be whipped, to be nailed to the cross, to bear the wrath of God for our sins so that he might purchase our access into his kingdom. The one that will always rule. This earth, the things upon it will fade away. We'll even see how some of that may happen towards the end of this book in Second Peter. But there is no choice. There is no choose your own adventure. Jesus is already king. He said it is finished. And so Peter, as he's writing this, is telling us the story has already been written. The end has already been determined. And so he says this prophetic word that's strongly confirmed, pay attention to it. Because this is what's going to take place. And our role in this story is not to make choices that dictate the end, but rather whether or not we're going to follow Jesus and take part in what He has already had planned. God began this uh, with the very first prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world by disobeying God. Uh, And He says that there would be a time uh, when Jesus would crush Satan, represented as the serpent, in that Throughout the Old Testament, there are more than 300 different prophecies and foreshadowings about Jesus arriving as the Messiah. And even things within Daniel that that pointed to the relative time of when Jesus would come. 300 different prophecies and foreshadowings. Uh, Mathematics and astronomy professor Peter Stoner uh, made the statement that the chance of just eight prophecies coming true by sheer chance, uh, is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So, so a 1 with 17 zeros behind it. I tried to figure out, like, you know, okay, there's a 1,000, and there's a 100,000, and a million, billion, trillion, and then I just didn't know the rest. And it's out there past that. Does everybody know, like, off the hand, 10 to the 17th power, what that would be? A lot. That works for me. <laughs> Best answer. Just eight of these prophecies, right? Let's just take one prophecy. The virgin birth prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7. What are the odds of that just happening to come true? Um, Impossible, outside from a miraculous work of God. And then you start to throw in the calculations um, that this guy does, uh, Peter Stoner, and, and it just is... Incredible, the mathematic chances of 300 different prophecies coming together. And so we have this overwhelming evidence through prophecy of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. We see the sovereignty of God who has authored this from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. With the plan of Jesus Christ coming at the appointed time in order to die for our sins to be forgiven. For Him to rise 
in resurrection to give us the opportunity for a new life with God through the work of the Holy Spirit. And at an appointed time, which no one knows but the Father, He is coming back. This has already been written. Jesus is the hero, not us. He does the work of salvation. We cannot earn our forgiveness. But He gives it to us through mercy and grace. The story's been written. We're offered the chance to join in this. Brought along by the grace of God. That's why Peter writes in verse 19, we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. He shows the value of paying attention to this. And I think it's something that's lost on us uh, as we live in cities and we have electricity and, and light bulbs. Uh, light, when is the last time you've truly been in a dark place where, where there's no light around? It's a cloudy night. There's no stars. There's no moon. There's no street lamps. Uh, your car headlights aren't working. You don't have a flashlight. And all you want is just a light in a dark place. Supplies to our world. We're, we're living in a dark place that is without hope and without Jesus Christ. We try with our best efforts to try and navigate through our human history. Making mistakes along the way. But never trying, never truly finding a solution to the deepest and darkest problems of mankind. Sin within our own hearts. It's the root of all the destruction and darkness that we see in this world. And there is no hope to that. Other than the light shining in the dark place, Jesus Christ. We see that in John chapter 1, where he is the light. The light for men, for women, for us to follow him, to find salvation. Pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. It is absolutely uh, the most valuable thing to us until the dawn and morning star arises in our hearts. It continues in verse 20. Above all this, uh, above all, know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And through this, I think there's two clear things, or maybe some more, but two clear things for us to learn here this morning. The first one is that the interpretation, the, the power, the truth of the prophecy within Scripture does not come from our understanding or our interpretation or our preference, but rather from the truth of God. It's not some subjective piece of art where we can walk into a gallery and, and here's this artwork on display and sit there and, and contemplate and say, well, what does this mean to me? What, what does this mean to you? Like this green thing like hanging above us. What do you think of that? This wreath. Any ideas? Any thoughts? Do you like it? Do you not like it? It's beautiful, somebody says. I don't like it because it throws some weird shadows up here. Uh, it feels too much like spring to me. You know, like outside it's all like fall colors. Any other thoughts? 
a laurel wreath. Okay, cool. Victory. Oh, there you go. You know, the crown. Absolutely. We could go all day on this, right? So like, what does it mean to you? It's this subjective thing. Like, I think there's some ivy in there. I don't know. It could have different meanings, and it could make each one of us feel a, a different way. That cannot happen with the prophetic word of Scripture. We cannot approach this God-breathed gift to us with this subjective view of, well, it means this to me. What does it mean to you? I, I feel like it gives me permission to do all these things. Well, I disagree with you on that. I think that you can't do anything. You have to do this and back and forth. And we see such a spectrum of things and beliefs within the world. But here Peter is saying, no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but they spoke as God carried them. No prophecy of Scripture comes from their own interpretation. It is not something subjective for us to ascribe value to. It is valuable, and we endeavor to learn it and follow after it, even if sometimes we don't necessarily understand. We can't make it mean what we want it to mean. Uh, I like the example of, of Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. I don't have the words uh, up on the screen for this because I'm going to jump around in the passage uh, a little bit. But, but here's Daniel, uh, and he's saying in the third year uh, in chapter 8 of the ring of King Belshazzar, a vision uh, appeared to me. And so he starts to go through this vision. I raised my eyes and I saw um, a ram standing on the bank of a canal. So just imagine you're, you're sitting there, uh, you're on this grassy knoll, there's like some water in front of you, uh, and there is a ram, a mountain-type goat, like sitting on the bank uh, across from you. It has two horns, all right, so it's got those curly horns. Both of the horns were high, but one was higher than the other one. And the higher one came up last, so it grew in last. And I saw him charging westward and northward and southward. And no beast could stand before him, and no one could rescue him from his power. So we got this angry mountain goat sheep-looking thing that's running around and just, like, destroying stuff. All right, so this is his vision or dream so far. Uh, then he continues on uh, and goes into saying, Oh, so here's this ram with two horns, uh, and now there is a goat. And this goat has a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So you got this sheep ram thing, the mountain goat, uh, and now you have a normal goat that has its eyes with the little weird square horizontal things uh, and this horn that's coming out in between it. Um, he came to the ram with the two horns, ran at him in wrath, came close, struck the ram down, broke his horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. Uh, then he talks about this horn being broken off the goat. Uh, then four more horns come out. Um, and then there was another little horn. And, and there's like different things happening here. And so then there's some uh, numbers that are thrown in. Uh, and, and this is Daniel's vision. All right. If you had a dream like that, what would you think about it? What would it mean? You got all these different things happening. And so, what this says here uh, in chapter 8, it says, Daniel had seen the vision. I sought to understand it. And so he's like, I don't get what this means. And his first reaction is not, 
okay, well, you know, goats mean this, and so therefore uh, I could throw in this translation of a uh, goat means destruction and and over here now you have this ram and you know i think i'm thinking football because it's sunday but anyways like we could throw labels on these different things and then try and translate it based on what we think these different things mean and so daniel doesn't do that instead he sees or he says i sought to understand it he he seeks god to know what this means and then verse 15, it says, Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And the man's voice, um, and it was called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So I'd be kind of cool in one sense to have like a crazy dream that you don't know what it means and be like, God, what did that mean? And like an angel shows up and like starts to explain it to you. And so this angel then says to Daniel, uh, Behold, I make known to you, uh, verse 19, what this is going to be. Uh, and verse 20, As for the ram you saw with the two horns, they are the kings of Media Persia. The goat is the king of Greece. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. Uh, and the angel goes on here through another ten verses or so, uh, explaining to Daniel uh, kind of what this means. And that it's referring to uh, some of the end time things. Um, the vision in the evenings and the morning has been told is true. Seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Uh, and so he gets this explanation, right, from this angel. Like this is what this prophecy, this is what this dream, this vision means. But, but I love uh, verse 27 here. And I, Daniel... So, so after this all happened, I, Daniel, was overcome and laid sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And so here's Daniel even saying, like, this was explained to be my an angel uh, about how this represents the Medes and the Persians and, and Greece and all these things. And, and it was explained to me, and, and I'm still appalled and frustrated because I can't understand exactly what it's going to mean. Looking into the light of history, we can understand these things a little bit more as they've come true and, and as things have pointed to Jesus Christ. We can't sit there and, and try to make up what the Word of God says. There are some things uh, that are really clear to us. And we need to be obedient to those things. When he tells us to avoid sin, we avoid sin. When he tells us what sin is, we don't try and justify it in the light of, well, it was written 2,000 years ago and we're living in 2020. And so that means that it's changed. It's God breathed. He has written the story. He spoke all things into existence and he has dictated to us what his reality, what he has created reality to be for us. And he has said, things are sin. Okay? You're God. You're king. My choice is either to obey and follow you or to rebel. But the story is written, and those that obey and follow will find themselves uh, at a festive table with Christ for all of eternity in heaven. And those who rebel are going to be cast outside the kingdom and suffer in an eternity of punishment for rebellion against the holy God. 
who has already told us the story. We can't pick and choose what we like or don't like. We can't ignore what's inconvenient for us or confront things that we're uncomfortable with. And so this is the first thing that we learn is this is the word of God and the things that he has revealed to us, especially through Christ, we obey or choose to rebel. That's our two options. It's like taking a, a book, a choose-your-own-adventure book. Uh, basically, here's the story. Jesus came to earth. He died on the cross. He was raised for the opportunity for forgiveness of sins. Uh, in your life now, you face a choice. Do I submit and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior uh, or not? If you don't, uh, go to page 68. The end. He wins. If you do, go to page 32. You're adopted into the kingdom of God as your sins are forgiven and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life of holiness and righteousness in obedience to Him. It's established. That's the only choice that we get to make as we pursue after Him and as He opens our eyes and reveals to us the beauty of Christ. Do we obey or do we not? I think the second thing to learn within this uh, is that while we have some understanding of prophecy, for instance, we can see how Isaiah is pointing towards Jesus coming, there are still things that are prophesied to take place. We may not understand what these things are. Daniel is having these visions of goats and rams, and even though it was explained to him by an angel about what some of this might mean or will mean in the future, he still sits there and says, I don't understand. We can go through the book of Revelation. We can go through different aspects of Daniel and the other prophets. And there are things that are said to be coming in our lifetime. Jesus, even in Matthew 24, said certain things are coming. Some of them we may not fully understand. And I think the warning here from Peter is saying that the dawn gets brighter as it draws closer. That there's more understanding as things take place. And that we need to be cautious uh, on this side of Jesus' return from dictating or trying to write a story or a narrative that expects certain things to take place. That, okay, there are frogs coming out of uh, a mouth in Revelation. And to be able to sit there and say, well, this frog is this, this frog is that, and this frog is this. Absolutely 100% true, and therefore we need to do certain things in our life. Again, where is God revealing that? I think at some point we're going to be on this side of things happening in Revelation, and we're going to look back and be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense now. But on this side of Revelation, I'm sitting there saying, it's going to be a hard time for the people on earth when this happens. And what we're called to do is follow Jesus. And he's got a plan. We can't vote if that plan is going to happen pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib. I have preferences of what I'd like to see happen over one or another. Like, like I like the one where I'm gone and then all the bad stuff happens. Right? But concerning the day or hour or the time, no one knows except for the Father, right? The story is written. It's His plan. 
And so all we're called to do is follow him in faith. To follow him through a crazy year of 2020. Where certainly things laid out in Matthew 24 and Luke 19 seem to point to the end being near. We follow understanding that God is in control. And that some of these prophecies we don't fully understand, so we do not want to manufacture or cleverly contrive myths about what we can expect with certainty. It's what the Israelites did, expecting for a militant Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. And because of that preconceived notion, they see Jesus dying, and they're like, nope, that wasn't him. And so it's a warning to us that if we create even well-intentioned, clever stories and, and myths about what may happen, and we hold those things with certainty in our hands, it may be difficult at times for us to really truly be able to follow God because we've already established in our hearts, this is what it's going to look like. Oh, here's something that doesn't look like this. And we may miss what God's actually doing in our midst. And so I think this text, what it's telling us is to hold to Scripture and then just trust God in things we don't understand. And his promise is, uh, in Second Peter, is that as the dawn comes and the light gets brighter, we're going to understand more. As the morning star rises within our hearts, he's going to reveal more things to us. But we're only going to understand it if we're anchored in Scripture, in the prophecy that God breathed Scripture given to us. Which is why we need to be so anchored in it. So then, as Jesse was talking about at the beginning of chapter 2 last week, we're not going to follow after false prophets. We're not going to follow after false teachers who are manufacturing their own myths, their own cleverly contrived stories. But instead, we hold fast to the truth that God is in control. That we seek to focus and follow on His majestic glory. And that we anchor ourselves into the Word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Uh, and I thank you again for this gift uh, of your God-breathed words to us. That we can be anchored in eternity, despite all of the events of this world, of our lives. Lord, I pray that you guard our minds and our hearts to be anchored in you and our trust in you, so that we do not follow after or even create for ourselves clever things that can try to justify our actions, our preferences, our choices, which are truly rebellion against your plan, your plan that has been in position ever since the beginning, for Jesus Christ comes to rescue us. We pray this in his name. Amen.